this evening, a prayer request or a praise. Prayer request or a praise. I can't encourage that, Keith. I can't say that's a good thing. He's mimicking doing something to the students. I don't want to. I know you are, well, you are, a, you know, a deacon in the church, so you have leadership now. So he's just following the example. So um, anyone have a prayer request or a praise? Huge praise this morning for the Powells uh, joining the church. So excited for that. Um, as I said, they've been attending uh, for a while now, and we're able to be part of the membership class and then able to join this morning. So we're so excited for them as they've already been serving in a lot of ways and so excited for that. Anyone have any other prayer requests or praises? Let's be praying for those that um, up in the uh, Gaylord area that had that tornado come through uh, end of this week. Want to be praying for them. And um, as far as I understand, there's been quite a bit of damage, but also there were some that lost their lives. And so want to be praying for the families, for the community there, um, praying for the churches in that community that they'll be able to do some things to help the community come together and minister there. Um, I kind of was thinking maybe we can be praying uh, if an opportunity arises for us as a church to do something in that community or be a part of something there, um, whether that's physically going up there or giving financially or whatever it might be. So um, I'm going to look into some things this week and see if we can come up with anything. So be praying for that. If the Lord would give us an opportunity to do that, that'd be really cool. So, but does anyone else have any? prayer concerns? If not, we'll go ahead and jump right into prayer. Jeff, did you sell your house yet? What's that? Okay, so be praying for that whole process to go well and smooth and everything, and then they can pray for, what do you want to say here, um, endurance as you live in a camper for a while with your wife and child, and that, you know, no one kills anyone, and the marriage lasts through that whole process. I want to pray for that, so that strengthen the marriage, not, you know, by the end of it, you're like, I'm not living with this woman anymore, or vice versa. So, all right. Well, let's go ahead and open in prayer. Oh, Julie, go ahead. Okay, so keep praying for Milo, not only for his... Uh, moving to Marlette closer to home, but also be praying for, obviously, healing, comfort, wisdom for the family and all of that. I know he was frustrated when we saw him, like, over, well over a week and a half ago, so I'm sure it's just even more so. But the conversation was great, though. It was really good to kind of talk to him and hear his thoughts on things. It was really, really good, so that was interesting. Um, but, yeah, be praying for that, for sure. Anyone else? Any other prayer concerns or praises? All right, well, let's go ahead and open in prayer, and then we'll get into our devotion as we continue to walk through these attributes of God this evening. Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity that you have allowed us to gather together to worship you. Father, as we come this evening, we desire to not only hear from you and from your word, but we want to know you more. And we pray that we would be in tune to what you have for us, Lord, that we would be attentive and give our attention to your word and to the truths we find therein. Father, we pray that you'd be with these requests that have been mentioned, Lord. We think about these that have suffered great loss up in Gaylord area with this tornado that came through, Lord. We pray that you'd comfort the families that have experienced, again, the loss of property or different things. We pray for those families that have the loss of loved ones that went on and 
Father, we pray that not only the churches there in that community would be able to reach in and help, but maybe there's a way that our church can be a blessing to that community. So help us to have wisdom and understanding, Lord. Maybe an opportunity is there. Help us to be able to find it, uh, to be able to get involved in some way, whether it means physically going up there or uh, just giving something to a group that's doing something there, Lord. Just help us to be aware of those things, to take initiative, uh, Lord, and to do what we can to step into those, those needs. Father, we do pray for Milo. We lift him up, Lord. We ask that you bring great healing and comfort to him. But Father, we do also pray for an open door of opportunity that he may be able to get moved to Marlette, Lord, that that would be uh, just a great blessing to the family to have him even that much closer. Uh, Father, we pray that you would just be with Kelly and Steve and the family, Lord, for Kenny and just all those that are involved in decision-making. Give them great wisdom as they try to really work with the situation, Lord, and to be the best or that it would be the best for Milo, that he'd be able to be uh, just encouraged and strengthened through all this. And Lord, we do thank you for this morning, for Chad and Wendy uh, becoming members of the church. Uh, It's just so exciting to see individuals join your church, commit to the church, and desire to be used by you in the local church. And so, uh, Father, what a great month it's been so far, Lord, to have uh, individuals joining, to have the baptisms last week, Lord. Just, it's so exciting to see what you're doing in your church And thank you for allowing us to be a part of this great place that we can gather and worship you here in this community. And so, Father, again, we thank you that that you're with us. We thank you for your word. And we pray, Father, you just lead, guide, and direct in all these things. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So this evening, we're picking up in our study on who is our God. So I do have some handouts here. I know we've got some students that are here for the first time. So um, I'm probably, you guys are just going to share. So if you don't have one, you're just going to share. But uh, who does not have a handout? If you've not been here, this is from two weeks ago. So I know I'm going to give a couple to the students to kind of look at together. Anthony, I think yours is actually on my desk. The one that you, there you go. You guys can share. Anyone else need one? Oh, okay, fine. There you go. Oh, Deanna, excuse me. Anyone else need one? I've got two left. Okay. Can you pass that down to Jeff to you, actually? I've got three left. I have one more. There you go. Nope, I'm good. I'm happy to be a blessing, Renee. Um... So we'll go ahead and get started. So we've gone through quite a few of these already. So we are on, if my notes are right, uh, number eight. So I think I'm right. Uh, We've covered the first seven. And so we've been going over these 15 attributes of God. And so we've covered quite a bit of ground. Uh, We've talked about his his attribute of being all-knowing to being everywhere at all times. We've talked about all those things, talked about his wisdom. And so number eight, we're going to jump right into our eighth attribute. And again, this 15 are not saying this is all God is. We're just trying to understand who God is according to his revealed word. And so we want to remind ourselves that, man, it is a blessing that God revealed himself to us. And he revealed himself through his word. And so it's an amazing gift that we're able to know him from his word. So number eight, we're going to jump right in. And so if you're taking notes or fill in there, uh, God is faithful. God is faithful. So number eight, God is faithful. I don't have pens. I should have probably brought pens in here, but um, there might be some in the sound booth if anybody needs a pen. So God is faithful, or the Welcome Center. That's probably another place. Um, So what we're talking about here is that he is infinitely, unchangingly true. So God is faithful. He doesn't change. His faithfulness remains forever. Um, 
Deuteronomy 7, 9 is the, the verse there that we're going to look at to start off. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. Who needs a pen? I'm just going to go ahead and do that because Pastor Greg's got him. Who needs a pen? A couple people up here. Just, yeah, hand them down, toss them down, whatever. Anyone else need a pen? Okay. So know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. Now, we have to pause here. When the Bible says in Deuteronomy 7 that God keeps his covenant to a thousand generations, that is not a literal thousand. It's not saying once we hit a thousand generations, he no longer has to be faithful. Okay, this is an example of kind of figurative use here. We read last Sunday, I believe it was, in Revelation. It says there's tens of tens of tens of tens of thousands of angels around the throne. Is that a literal number? Like if I did the math on that and figured out what that number was, is that all the angels around the throne? No, it's meant to be exaggerated, right? It's meant to make us think of a large group of angels, or in this case, a long time of generations, generation after generation after generation, that God is faithful, keeping his covenant of love. Now, it's interesting. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 7. So when we think of the covenant that God made in the Old Testament, we think of the law, we think of rules and regulations. But here Moses is writing and he says it's a covenant of love. So even in the beginning, the covenant that God had with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, he transitions to Moses being the mediator as we've been going over on Wednesday nights. It is not a covenant of law. It has always been a covenant of love and grace. Now there's law involved in that. But the fact that God, when he came to the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, the fact that God didn't just wipe Adam and Eve out, just didn't just destroy them right there and then and just obliterate them, is an act of grace. That was enough grace that he just chose to let them live. But he went a step farther. And he put an angel in the garden to protect them from getting to the tree of life, that they would live forever. Why? Because he did not allow them to live forever in their sin. That's even more grace. But he doesn't stop there. He actually gives them a way through sacrifice to continue to have a relationship with him. Even more grace. But yet they broke the law. They violated this agreement with God. But God is faithful. And God will always give grace to those that are willing to receive it. Now, those that reject grace, those that reject the offer of an invitation of salvation, God is still faithful. And he is faithful to the fact that just as much as he is faithful to being gracious, because that's his character, we've already talked about he is faithful to his own idea of justice, and which is a perfect justice and holiness. 2 Timothy 2, 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He cannot deny himself. We said it this morning. God, and we even said it last week, I think in the Sunday evening. God will always be in agreement with his nature. God will always be faithful to himself. And so it makes us think, why then, thinking about this idea that God is faithful to himself, even when we are faithless, why then is he holding on to us in salvation? Why is he faithful to you even when you are unfaithful to him? You can answer if you'd like. Why, why is God faithful to you even though you're faithless and not in agreement with his ways or his word or you're rebellious, but yet in Christ? Why does he continue to remain faithful to you? Okay, because of his covenant, his promise. 
What else in that aspect of his faithfulness to us? Why is he faithful to unfaithful creatures? Those that know Christ. Okay, he loves us. What makes me a Christian? Believing in what? In Christ, death, burial, and resurrection. So God is faithful to you because God is, the Father is faithful to God the Son. And God is faithful to the Son, and because the Son sacrificed himself, was buried and rose again, and covers us in his righteousness, God is faithful to you because God is faithful to himself. He's faithful to the Son. He will never choose faithlessness to his Son, so he can't be faithless to you because you are in the Son. This is why we need to understand it is not what we do as a Christian that makes us saved, keeps us saved, earns us grace or favor with God. It is purely God's faithfulness to himself. I mean, ultimately, that's really what we should be trusting in. Because if it was the other way around where he had to be faithful to us when we were faithful to him, it would be an up and down, up and down, mostly down relationship. Because we we struggle with being faithful to him. And I'm not talking about the simple things of going to church and doing those things, but in our hearts and our attitudes, are we truly, are we faithful to God? And when we think of the word faithful, I think of relationships. I think of marriages and things like that. Are we, are we committed to him as though he's our only love? Like we love him more than anything else. What did Jesus say to Peter? Peter, do you love me more than these? Do you love me most among all the disciples? Do you really love me? And he asked that question three times. And each time Peter's like, "Mm, you know all things, you know all things. And finally he's like, in a way, Lord, you know. I don't, but I want to is what Peter was basically saying. I desire it. And so again, this faithfulness, we need to be thankful that God is faithful to us even when we are faithless. It doesn't mean we choose faithlessness or that we ignore him or rebel willingly. No, do we sin that grace may abound? God forbid. But in our human nature, in our weakness, when we are struggling in some way, when we cry out as the father did in in Mark's gospel, I believe, but help my unbelief. What was he saying? I have faith, but I also don't have faith. I have some faith. I want to believe, but I also know I don't have perfect faith. So what is God's response to that kind of honest plea? I'm going to do a work among you. I'm faithful to do this. As with all of God's attributes, they are not separate, isolated traits but interconnected parts of his perfect whole being. So his faithfulness cannot be understood apart from his immutability, the fact that he never changes. The fact that he never changes and the fact that he's always faithful are interconnected. He will never cease to be faithful. He is always faithful because he doesn't change. So when we read that God remains faithful for he cannot deny himself, we see these attributes working together. The fact that he is unchanging means he can never not be faithful. Uh, An author, I'm not familiar with this author, but again, as I was preparing this curriculum and coming across different resources where I drew some of these things, um, they had a lot of quotes from different authors. And so this individual author, uh, A.W. Pink, which that's the person's name, last name of Pink, um, writes this about God's faithfulness. God is true. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I need to remind myself of that simple little three-word phrase. God is true. Because we live in a day and age where truth itself is not absolute, right? What's the opposite of absolute truth? What do we live in today? What kind of truth? How would we define the truth we see today? 
relative. What does that mean? Your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth. And as long as your truth is your truth only, and you don't judge my truth, then we're fine. It's relative. Another way we could say it is uh, situational ethics. This is right, but not all the time. There's some situations that might mean this is, it's okay to do that, even though it's wrong. And I used this example before that when we talk about God is unable to lie, that should strike us because in our culture today, lying is not a big deal. And in fact, you're encouraged to lie if it means you won't hurt someone's feelings. It's okay to lie because telling the truth hurts their feelings. Don't do that. So it's okay to lie. That's, that's relative truth. That's situational ethics. Murder is wrong. But in this and this and this case, it's fine. Because we have justified that in our lives. What does Isaiah say? I referenced this a couple weeks ago. We call evil good and good evil. We've, we've redefined what truth is. So when you read those three words or hear these three words, God is true. He's unchanging. He's faithful. He never ceases to be God. He is true and he's true to his word. His word of promise is sure. In all his relations with his people, God is faithful. He may be safely relied upon. No one ever yet really trusted him in vain. We find his precious truth expressed almost everywhere in the scriptures. For his people need to know that faithfulness is an essential part of the divine character. The author goes on to say this in closing. This is the basis of our confidence in him. Why are you confident in God? Why are you confident in his word? Because you're confident in the fact that he is true and he doesn't change. He's going to be faithful. This is one of the reasons why I love Philippians 1.6. If you know it, what is Philippians 1.6? Mm-hmm. Being confident, Paul says. You know what I sense there? It's almost like Paul's like, I have a lot of things I'm not confident in in this world. I mean, he had some fellow workers that he wasn't very confident in, right? Yeah, this guy left and this guy left and this guy's not with us anymore having loved this present world. But he says, but I'm confident of this. I, I know this, that the one who began a good work in you will finish the work. What's the good work that Jesus started in you? What's Paul talking about there? Is it just a good work to do good things? It's our salvation. Paul says, do you know why I'm confident that your salvation is secure in Christ and he will complete it until the day you stand before him? He's going to perfect it or mature it to the point of full grown because I'm confident in who God is because he doesn't change. He's always the same. He's unrelentingly faithful. He goes on to say, Of course, we don't always understand or see how his plan is faithful. In our limited understanding and finite minds, God's faithfulness might look a lot like abandonment. God's faithfulness might look a lot like abandonment. For how could a faithful God allow his children to suffer, to hurt, to die? But Christians can take comfort in these moments by remembering these attributes of God. For when we go through hard times, we know that God is nevertheless unchangingly faithful, good, always with us, and wise. Do you see how it's, it's all interconnected? We're looking at them one at a time, but this is the makeup of who your God is. Faithfully trusting God who says he is a great comfort. First Corinthians thirteen twelve. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. 
Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. One day, we don't understand it now. Uh, Let's be honest for a minute. You've probably, if you've lived long enough, you've questioned the faithfulness of God. You've questioned, is God really faithful? Is God really going to keep loving me and keep holding on to me even when I've done X, Y, or Z? And what does your flesh want you to believe about the faithfulness of God? You can answer, what does our flesh want us to believe? What does our natural man want us to think about the faithfulness of God? But he's unfaithful. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So we base his faithfulness to us on what we've done or not done, right? Any other things our flesh or the enemy tells us? This is kind of what I was thinking. Okay. Okay. So this is what the enemy does, right? Is there a truth that we don't, we're not worthy of the faithfulness of God? Is that a true statement? That I am not worthy, meaning earned, the faithfulness of God? 100% true. Why? Because why is God faithful to me? Because I earned it and was worthy of it? My sin cast me away from him. I've broken his law. I'm sinful. I'm receiving the faithfulness of God, not because I'm worthy of it, but because Christ in me has made me the righteousness of Christ. I'm a created being of God, valuable with intrinsic worth as a created being, but I don't deserve the faithfulness of God. So I'm, I'm worthy in a sense that I'm created by him, but I'm very much unworthy of his faithfulness because I've sinned and broken his law. And so in Christ, God does not base his faithfulness to you on your worth in your understanding of that word, in your deserving of it. Because again, if we start using those words, what do we think of? Performance, achievement, what I do. No, God is faithful to you because he chose to be faithful to you, to love you as you are in your sin. Then he begins to conform you to the image of Christ. Now you see your worth and value in Christ. You see who you were created to be. But even in this flesh, we still don't deserve the faithfulness of God. What does Timothy say? He is faithful when I am unfaithful. We don't have perfect faith. So again, there's some truth in the fact that, yeah, I'm not worthy, naturally speaking, of the, of the faithfulness of God because I've sinned. I've not been faithful to him. I don't deserve his faithfulness to me. But he chose to be faithful in spite of me. What does Romans say? In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for me. So I have worth, I have value in Christ and created by God. But when I realize my lack of faith, I go, man, I don't deserve his faithfulness. But that doesn't change his faithfulness. I want to really make sure we're clear here because the enemy will take little things that are half-truths or sort of truths and then try to exaggerate those things out to application of, well, because you're not worthy of it, naturally speaking, because you don't earn it, you haven't earned it, therefore, you never will receive it. God is not going to be faithful to you. So I hope that's clear. I want to be clear on that. Yes, we are worthy in the sense that we are created by God but we're not worthy in the sense that I deserve his faithfulness. He gives it to us graciously, right? 
So we've got to be careful there because there's some things there. It's kind of the idea of humility, right? I should be humble before an all-powerful God to realize I don't deserve his love. And I'm humbled in my sin. I go, man, I don't deserve this love, but he still loves me. I don't go, well, he doesn't love me because I've sinned. No, he loves me in spite of my sin. So again, just some food for thought there as well. So our question, we keep asking. Our question we're asking, how does this attribute speak to you? How does this attribute speak to you? So what does it mean to you? How does it speak to you when you realize that God is faithful apart from you and I and what we do for him? We don't earn it. We can't deserve it. How does that encourage you? How does that speak to you? So I want you to think on that just for a moment before we move on. How does this attribute speak to you? Number nine, not only is God faithful, but God is good. God is good. So he is infinitely, unchangingly kind and full of goodwill. So he is faithfully good. He is consistently good, always good. Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Just like his other attributes, God's goodness exists within his immutability and infinite nature so that he is unchangingly always good. So the goodness of God cannot be questioned, but we question it all the time. I know I do. His mercy flows from his goodness. In his goodness to us, we see that he has purposed to be, a, to be good in a special way to his people. As with God's other perfect attributes, Christians find it easier to affirm the goodness of God when things are going well. When life takes a nosedive, though, that's when we begin to question God's goodness to and for us. It's easy to say God is good when things are good. But when things are bad, situations are bad, circumstances are bad, situations aren't working out, it's harder to say God is still good. God is still good because I don't see the goodness of God in how I would define that word. When the psalmist writes, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, Psalm 34, he is inviting us not just to believe that God is good, but to experience God's goodness. Desiring God website, uh, which is a ministry that John Piper is a big part of. I don't, I'm pretty sure he's the founder of it, but it's a ministry called Desiring God. Uh, interestingly, as Desiring God writer Andrew Wilson wrote in an article on their website, speaking to the subject of God's goodness, he said this. The psalmist affirms his experience of God's goodness from a place of suffering. In verse 19 of Psalm 34, he makes the remarkable announcement, many are the afflictions of the righteous. So the psalmist says from a place of affliction, he's saying, listen, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Even with a good God who is sovereign over everything and has the power to do whatever he likes, good people still suffer. Good in the sense of righteous followers of, of God, in this case in the psalm. His punchline, though, comes in the next phrase. But Yahweh delivers him out of them all. Evil happens, but none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So I love the way the author of that article writes that, that there are things that come into our lives, afflictions that come unto the righteous, but no matter what the affliction, no matter what the trial, God's goodness remains. 
Because his goodness is not as we define it. And we talked about this with the whole when bad things happen to good people. We think good things from God are always going to be what we think are positives. It's always going to be a raise. It's always going to be this blessing that we define as a blessing. It's always going to be financial increase or, you know, whatever we've been praying for, God is going to do it and then that'll be good. So we define the goodness of God around how we think things are good. But this, God steps outside of that definition and says, no, goodness is actually allowing you to go through this affliction so that you can grow into the image of Christ in this way. I'm sanctifying you. I'm cleansing you. I'm creating in you the image of Christ. And so that means I'm going to allow these things that you see as bad situations, but in essence, they're really good because they're producing something. This is why Paul talks about, I believe it's in Romans 5, about going through the trials of life. And he actually says there's joy in them. I don't think Paul was excited to be shipwrecked, beaten, left for dead. I don't think that's what he was finding joy in, the actual acts of things that were happening to him. I think what Paul was saying was, I see the joy in that these things are producing something. And what does he say, even in his epistles? I want you to know this, that everything I'm going through is for the advancement of the gospel. So Paul was willing to be thrown in prison, beaten, all these things. And the good from that in his mind was the gospel will be preached. That was good enough for Paul. I'll, I'll endure a beating because the good that God is going to do from this is the gospel is going to be preached in the palace and in the prison. And so because of that, God is good, God is gracious, and I'm going to trust him. And so the goodness of God, we have to understand, is not conditional upon the things we see in our lives. He is good. And by the way, you were saved because of his good pleasure in his will. It pleased him to save you. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says in Ephesians, we were saved because of the good pleasure according to his will. Again, God chose to save you because it made him joyful to save you. Again, not because you were deserving of it in the sense of you've earned it and you worked really hard for it. No, his will was to save you. And so he did. And so we respond to his goodness in that way. So our question that you guys are probably really tired of hearing, how does this attribute speak to you? How does the goodness of God, to know that God is good all the time, even in the difficult things, how does that encourage you? How does that speak to you in some way? Number 10, we talked about the holiness of God. Number 10, God is just. God is just. He is infinitely unchangeable, unchangeably right and perfect in all he does. He is right and perfect in all he does. Everything he does is just. Deuteronomy 32.4 The rock... His work is perfect, for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he, for all his ways are just. Everything he does is right. So what does it mean that God is just? When we say that, what do we mean by that? It means more than he is simply fair. It means he always does what is right and good towards all men. Likewise, although this is hard for many to accept, his sentencing of evil, unrepentant sinners to hell, is also right and good. 
Now, right there, we would say, how is it good to send someone to hell? Because it is the goodness of God on display that he would save some, and the justice of God that he would condemn a sinner. All of those attributes are being glorified here. In light of God's other attributes of goodness, mercy, love, and grace, there are some who might in error say that God is too kind to punish the ungodly. But to believe this means we dull the reality of his infinite, unchanging justice. God will have justice for sin, either from Christ's atoning death or for those who will not accept it, eternal wrath in hell. Because God is objectively good and righteous as our creator, he can exercise judgment on humanity that we might deem that judgment unfair, but it is more than fair, it is just. We sit back and we go, who is God to judge humanity this way? He's in fact the only one that could objectively judge humanity the way he does. We actually struggle with true justice. Even in our courts, even in our hard work to try to understand what is right and wrong, we struggle in this. We are not perfectly just. Everything we do is not right. There are decisions that get made where one person is condemned and it may not be just. Another person is let go, not just. We, we, we battle with this. We struggle with this. This is even in our own culture. What is right? We don't always do what is right. Is it right that this person got that con condition on their crime or their conviction of their crime and this person got off? And why does it, if you do this crime, it's this many years in prison, but this crime, it's that? And we don't understand. Because we don't really understand true justice because we're not objective. We're not outside the situation looking in. God is on the outside looking in and he is our creator. Therefore, he knows our hearts. He knows our minds. So when God exercises judgment, this is why when God decided to tell Noah to build an ark and I'm going to destroy the world in the flood, by the way, global flood, not localized flood, global flood. And he told Noah, you're going to do this and you're going to preach this message of possible repentance and grace and forgiveness. And he did this for 120 years. And then he decided to flood the world killing those on the planet, not in the ark. Man, there are those in the world today that struggle with this. There are Christians that struggle with this. That's so not fair. That's not fair that God would do that. No, it's actually greater than fair. It's just. Because God is the only one that can objectively and rightly take human life and be completely just in doing so. Because he knows he knows the heart. He knows the mind. He knows everything that's going to come out of that person's life. And so he can make a decision to say, I'm going to judge you this way. You read in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira. What was their big mistake? What did they do? What was their sin, Ananias and Sapphira? What did Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts do that was a sin? Yep. Yeah, remember the apostles were all like, hey, by the way, of their own choice, no one told them they had to, decided to sell their possessions, not all of them, but a large percentage of them, sold their possessions, took the profit they had made, the money they had made, gave it to the apostles and said, here, use it for whatever you want, okay? Distribute it to the need in the church. And here Ananias and Sapphira see this and go, hey, they're getting, I'm, I'm assuming, they're getting a lot of attention for doing that. Man, people are really looking up to those guys, getting a lot of good jobs, I'm just assuming because this is how human nature is. So they decide we're going to do that too. And then they say, well, what did you sell it for? Oh no, this is everything. We, this is all that we made. Nope. Well, they kept some back, which is so silly. They could have done whatever they wanted to. It wasn't a command. 
But Peter says they lied against the Holy Spirit. They, 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 they claimed that they did something they didn't do and tried to deflect it off onto God or the Holy Spirit. Now, I, I don't know. We don't know if they're Christians or not. It's not definitively spelled out in Scripture for us. I tend to believe they were. But that's just my opinion. You can disagree with me and be wrong. That's fine. But I tend to think they were. Okay? I'm kidding, of course. What was the judgment for their sin? Right? And the husband died first, if I remember the story right. I think I remember right. So they carry his body away. Here comes the wife. Now, this also seems to happen in church. Like, this is a church service, which I've always said, what would you do if you were visiting a church and a guy dies right there in front of you and they carry his body out and then his wife comes in and then she dies and they carry the body out and he's like, hey, they sinned against the Holy Spirit. I would be at the altar like that. Lord, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I, please, I'm sorry. So this happens. He dies and she comes in and he, Peter gives her a chance. Hey, tell me the situation. What's going on here? She lies just like her husband did. Hey, by the way, the feet of the men that just carried your husband away, they're coming to get you. And she dies. It seems extreme to us. <laughs> but why did God do that? Well, I don't have a definitive answer of why God did that. We see he's just, he judges the sin, he decided in his sovereign will, this is what must happen. Most would say, I tend to agree with this, most would say that if they were Christians and they were in the church, the church is in its kind of infant stage, it's growing. And so God was not going to allow Ananias and Sapphira to have any derailing of what God was doing. God would rather have taken them home, this is how I see it, God would rather have taken them home than let them continue in this and bring more or less disgrace or shame on the church as it's beginning this movement. Now, again, we don't definitively know that because Scripture is kind of quiet on it. We just know they sinned, the judgment was this, and that's what we know. And by the way, the people glorified God as a result because they didn't want to die. No, that's not true. They really didn't want to glorify God. But when we think about this, that seems crazy to us. That seems so extreme. But it's more than fair. It's just. R.C. Sproul quoted on this idea, says this, let's assume that all men are guilty of sin in the sight of God. From the mass of humanity, God sovereignly decides to give mercy to some of them. What do the rest get? They get justice. The saved get mercy and the unsaved get justice. Nobody gets injustice. The saved get mercy and the rest get justice. Nobody receives injustice. Because God is just all the time. As we said a little bit ago, you don't go to heaven because of what you did. You go to heaven because of what Jesus did. So Jesus paid for your sin. Jesus covered your sin. Jesus' blood was shed for your sin. You don't get a free pass just because God wants to give you a free pass. You made a choice to receive Christ. That sin was paid for. It's just. It's not unjust for God to save us because Jesus died for us. He took the penalty. Those that reject Christ are sentenced to hell. That's not unfair. That's not extreme. If to be saved took the death of the Son of God, then to not be saved and to pay for it ourselves and an eternity in hell is not nearly as an extreme a sacrifice. The Son of God, God Himself, died for your sin. That's extreme. And yet, so many people, 
God is not fair. God's not fair. It's not fair. It's not fair. Anyone who really thinks God is not fair is not really trying to understand what sin really is. If you think Adam and Eve being punished the way they were and humanity being punished the way it was for the sin that entered in was about eating some fruit, you've missed the point. It's about disobeying the word of God and neglecting God as God. And when we do that, we deserve hell. That's what God says, and he is just. So how does this attribute speak to you? I've tried not to do this, but I'm going to give you a little bit of a how this speaks to me moment because I want you to think about this for yourself. To me, this is a great encouragement because it helps me to realize that when I see injustice in our world, or individuals get away with things that I'm like, how could they not get caught or they should pay for that? Or that's not fair that they, I can pause and stop and no, nope, God's just. And everything will be fine in the end because God's going to deal with it. This is why Paul says, don't take vengeance because God will have his vengeance. That doesn't mean God's going to let everything go. It means no, God knows. And God will make sure that every believer who is martyred, who is killed, Everything that is done against God, God will take vengeance on that. Not revenge, but vengeance. The right penalty for the sin. Last one here quickly, as we're almost out of time. <coughs> Number 11, I believe. I printed it on the back of these, and it always confuses me to flip and then switch and then flip back. So hopefully it's number 11. God is merciful. God is merciful. He is infinitely, unchangeably, compassionate, and kind. And it's not contradicting to say that he is merciful and just. We see these again. They're working in unison. Romans 9, 15 through 16. And I believe you have that in your notes there. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. God says, I will have mercy on who I will have mercy. And we cannot challenge that and say, no, that's wrong, God. You have to have mercy on everyone. Everyone gets to go to heaven. No. It's his mercy. He gives it. We don't dictate to God what he does with it. As noted above, God's mercy is inseparable from his justice. He is infinitely, unchangeably, unfailingly merciful, forgiving, lovingly kind toward us. He is inexhaustibly Actively compassionate, his mercy is also undeserved by us. Again, we didn't earn his mercy, we earned hell. But he says, no, my son came and there's grace and there's mercy. Spurgeon writes this, and I love this. Spurgeon writes this, it is undeserved mercy, as indeed all true mercy must be. For deserved mercy is only a misnomer for justice. There was no right on the sinner's part to the saving mercy of the Most High God. Had the rebel been doomed at once to eternal fire, he would have justly merited the doom. And if delivered from wrath, sovereign love alone has found a cause, for there was none in the sinner himself. Again, we have to truly see ourselves as Scripture reveals us to be. Created by God for a relationship with God, to be with him forever, and sin entered in. And because sin entered in, we now deserve wrath and, and destruction and hell. But God chose in his grace to give you mercy and an opportunity to know him as Savior. Without the mercy of God, we would have no hope of heaven. 
because we can't earn it. We can't deserve it. So lastly, I know I kind of went through that kind of quick, but how does that attribute speak to you? How does the mercy of God speak to you? How does that encourage you? How does that strengthen your walk with him? How does it bring joy to your heart to know that you don't earn the mercy of God so you are given it freely as a gift? That's to be comforting to us in so many ways. So how does this attribute speak to you? We're going to move into the next one next week. I know we still have a little bit of time. We're going to pray and then just a couple minutes early, but I don't want to get into the next one because there's a little more content. I want to make sure we really unpack that together. All right. So we're going to pray and then we'll let you guys be dismissed. Father, we thank you for this evening. Lord, we thank you for seeing in us who we were created to be. That when sin was present and leading us astray into rebellion, that you didn't leave us hopeless. You, you gave to us the message of salvation that anyone, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. You extended your mercy to us that we might know you. You're faithful to Jesus, who is our Savior, because you're faithful to yourself. And you will keep us and hold on to us forever. And Father, you are just. Everything you do is right. So often we'll question whether something you do is fair. But what a silly thing to do from a finite creature that was created by you to question your fairness and your goodness. I truly believe every time we question that, it's just the flesh in us trying to get us to deny, to ignore your word, to exchange the truth for a lie, to trust in our understanding, and to not lean on your understanding. But Father, I, I really do believe the more we're in your word, the more that we're growing in you, we'll see that you are a just God. And I know that we get infuriated by the things we see, the the heartless acts of human beings in committing crimes against one another. And we don't see justice in our understanding. We don't see people pay for their crimes. We see individuals who commit heinous acts being released within a matter of a couple years. And Father, yet we see things happening in our world around us and we're just wondering, where's the justice? Where's the fairness? But we have to stop and pause and go to your word and realize that there will come a day where the books will be balanced. All the ledgers will line up and you will see, or we will see rather, your justice and your holiness on display. That every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. That it is not for us to tell you, but for us to trust in your will. And thank you for the time you give us to receive your mercy. That every year, every day, every moment of breath in our lungs is to the, to the understanding that we would know Christ and make him known. And so, Father, I pray. I know it's a pretty churched group in here and a smaller group, Lord. But I just, I, I genuinely pray if there's someone in this room right now that has never received your grace, never received your mercy by receiving Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, that they would make that decision tonight that they would receive the forgiveness of sins. Lord, I know many in this room have been in church a long time. They've heard sermon after sermon, Bible story after Bible story, but I pray that if they don't know Christ, tonight it's more than that. It's a reality that there will come a day, and we don't know when that day will come. 
that we will give an account. And we will understand and be covered under the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And our defense does not start with, I did this or I did that. It starts with, well, he did this and he did that. He died for me. He rose again. But maybe there's some in this room that have been trusting in religion, trusting in the faith of their parents, choosing to deny the truth and believe the cultural norms and the relative truth we hear around us and rejecting the gospel. I pray that you would do what only you can do by the working of your Holy Spirit to reveal to them the need of repentance, to convict them of sin and righteousness, and to draw them unto an understanding that we need grace, that they would trust in you. Father, again, may you be glorified in all that we've said and done. Thank you for these many attributes that you've displayed before us in your word, that we'd glorify you in them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, you guys are dismissed. And then the students, I'm just going to guess you guys are going to go right next door here to the fellowship hall. So head right over there. If you are not a student, um, don't be in the fellowship hall very long. Let's say it that way so they can get right to their stuff. Have a great night. We'll see you guys Wednesday.